0: Uh, can you just lean a little closer to the camera, please?
1: Mm-hmm. Let
0: me just really take in what's mm-hmm. happening facial hair-wise with you. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Well, you didn't compliment, but you mentioned it. No, 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 I, no. No, I, no, no, I mean, no. I meant, no, no, no
0: I meant I want to behold it. I mean, yep. this is, we talked about this, I think, last week, but um, your mustache has reached a new level of sexual. Oh, I'm sorry to say it. Well, no, don't be sorry. Don't what is be Ben's sorry. What is Ben's reaction to this? I think he's liking it. He's He seems to be liking it. Yeah, I would yeah. imagine. Uh, yeah. I bring it up because yesterday uh, I was lying on the floor, uh, spooning Faye like you do when you know that this is the last day that you are going to have with your sweet, sweet elderly dog. And there have been... Uh, there is there there was uh, there were a lot of deliveries and we and and we were in a full daze. There's of a, there's I, I I see somebody from where I'm lying down put something down on the bench on the front porch and I I go thank you and I open the door as this gentleman walks down the stairs and I just go thanks. And I pick up the bag, and then he turns around, and he's got a hat and a mask and sunglasses on. And I still don't realize until you say, hi, that it was not a delivery person, but it was you. Well, I was, in that moment, a delivery person. Yes, yes, sure. But all of your signature things were, were hidden from me, is my point. Okay, but okay, I, couldn't okay. hair, couldn't sash, so I couldn't see the hair, I couldn't see the sash, I couldn't see the eyes.
1: Essentially, a prowler. Um, so, Matt, I am so sorry about Faye. and I, It's the absolute worst— uh, I hate the feeling and it's just, yeah, I'm just sorry. Thank you. You know, uh,
0: there was, I, I, I'm, sh- uh, she was 14. She was, mm-hmm. you know, deteriorating in so many ways. It was, it was really well past time and she was very much ready, but you know, there is the, the crying that you do for the obvious reason that you have to say goodbye to your, your baby. But then there's the crying mm-hmm. that you do because of this like onslaught of, of love that comes in from, from your friends. You know, it was just like, right. we, we were, could not believe the amount of flowers. And Renee sent us this amazing like bounty of cookies and you sent us these the vegan cookies in this beautiful book. And the, it was just like, more and more and more in the text coming in and the, the, the memories about her, everyone is sharing was like, that was sort of more sweetness than I I am built to handle, you know, and uh, I'm so grateful to everybody, but I like truly today, I'm so dehydrated and so tired. And so, you know, I'm like pretty cried out to be
1: honest. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I know it. I know it. Well, it's, it is the worst. And she was such a beauty. And I, I mean, I loved having her around, but I loved the way that when you would leave the room and then come back, just the way that she would be like, oh, there he is. Oh, uh, yeah. She, is, she was... You, yeah the, the, the irony she is that, uh,
0: the irony is that she separation anxiety was her big problem, and now, oh, you know, we are the ones with the separation anxiety yeah. um, but I, I i i there are so many great moments that she was in the studio when we used to go to the studio, and a guest would be at the sort of like apex of a of like a devastatingly vulnerable moment. And it was so silent and you and I are like on the verge of tears. And then like clockwork, Faye would either snore comedically loud or she would simply fart to punctuate the moment. And it was so embarrassing, but also so perfect. And like somehow even then she was still like the most beautiful, the most elegant
1: creature that I have ever laid my eyes on. Yeah. She was something else. Never to be forgotten. Yeah. Um,
0: so, uh, thank you, everybody. Already, so many nice messages uh, from people who who loved her, and and thank you to you and to Renee for all the love. It means the world and has kept us afloat. Um, and you know, another thing that keeps us afloat in these uh, very tricky times is reading. How's yes. the segue going? Oh, it's um, great. And I uh, I found so much escapist pleasure in reading Leave the World Behind by this uh-huh. week's guest, Ruman Alam. Um, we're going to talk a lot about the book in this interview. Um, but it's such a – well, t- we also talk about it being like a very sort of um, e- e- like eerily – uh, timely book in a way that he didn't yeah. intend because it is about isolation and everything. But I do want to tell people it's such a fun read and such a fast read and and truly like a, it's and it's a thriller and it's hilarious and you're going to love it. If you haven't read it already, you're going to love it.
1: All right. Well, let's get into it. Ruman Alam.
0: We're back with Ruman Alam. Hello. Hello Hi, how are you guys? Great. So excited that you're here. <laughs> yes. Um, how are you? You were uh, in the middle of teaching when we connected with you. Yeah,
2: I mean, I think in this Zoom age, um, I'm doing a lot of bouncing between talking about my book in book promotion mode and also going about my daily life, which is I'm teaching right now. I'm teaching at Columbia University and I'm teaching at Pace University, both here in New York, but it's all happening virtually. Um, And I have two kids, so I'm also kind of being a sixth grade teacher and a third grade teacher, although I'm I'm not much of a sixth grade teacher or a third
1: grade teacher, it turns out. boy. (laughs) What is being covered in your kids' classes at the moment?
2: So my sixth grader is doing a creative writing class, which is great and part of something that I do have a perspective on helping him with. Um, But he's also doing a kind of rigorous social studies curriculum. And then the place I find myself really drowning is in math, sixth grade math. Mm -hmm. The way that kids learn math today is completely different from how... I was taught math and my third even my third grader like i understand the concept of third grade level math but the ways in which they are taught to multiply numbers is just it's like i I don't even know what the metaphor is it's like it's, it's like he's speaking another kind of language and they do all this sort of picture drawing and graph making and i never know what he's talking about and i went to a catholic school so my answer is always like well six times seven is 42 because christ himself told me that that was the case <laughs> so i don't know why you need to draw a picture for this like you just memorize it but like that's not how kids are taught these days what was the problem with the old way i couldn't answer for you okay well i couldn't okay. answer that for you but it is uh it has been discarded i can tell you that for sure it wow. has been Discarded, and so at some point there's going to be a generation of adults in this country that thinks about math as a visual problem as opposed to uh, a problem from memory, which is really fascinating to me.
0: Wow. And when you, I guess, especially with the sixth grader, if you ever get into a territory where you you genuinely just do not know how to help with homework, do you pretend that you do? Or or, I mean, I I guess we don't want to model for kids that we just like go to the Internet, which is what I would do.
2: Yeah, there's little point in me maintaining a charade of parental or adult authority (laughs) in front of my sixth grader. He's already completely seen through that performance. So um, they have their own ability at this point um to use the tools of technology and in fact one of the the struggles with me dealing with him doing his sixth grade math is that the teacher has encouraged them to use the calculator so they're using calculators all the time in a way that is so different from how i was taught like when i was struggling with division or fractions or decimals like i was taught that you work it out by hand and that's not the methodology they're using in his classroom it's kind of Mm. it's pretty
0: crazy. (laughs) So what is, um, what is a day in the life right now? I guess it's two o'clock where you are. Kids will be home soon. Um, as you said, you're balancing, you know, promoting the book and, uh, presumably writing and teaching. Is there like a daily, are you able to maintain some semblance of structure?
2: I think that my husband and I both have a predisposition towards like staying organized and keeping a schedule. And so we do have like a pretty tight ship, you know, here at home, like we all get up first thing in the morning. I'm very big on like making the bed and getting dressed. And my kids are in school in person a couple of days a week each. And so those days are great because there's a different sense of purpose about the day. When you put on your clothes and you put your stuff in your backpack and you head out the door and you go somewhere, Part of the struggle of this moment is that we have to reckon with that being taken away from us and realizing that the texture of everyday life, that ability to get on the subway, to stop at the same Starbucks you always stop at, to go to the meetings with the same people you're always seeing, all of that sort of comfortable stability has been eroded. And so we're just in this sort of improvisatory space of like, well, I'm teaching So I'm off limits to you and my family, but I'm also just upstairs in my office and like talking to my undergraduates via Zoom. So it's tough. It's tough. It's not, it's not like an easy thing, but, you know, there's a great comfort in doing this kind of work, right? Like I'm not actually going out into the world. I'm not a nurse, right? I'm not a police officer. Like I'm not actually doing something difficult. So I know how silly it is to actually lament this particular circumstances
0: um i want to talk about the book obviously which i i I love so much and as soon as i finished it emailed our producer renee and was like could you please try to get him so glad we did but um i guess first i would love to know what you are reading at the moment
2: I am going to write the introduction to a book called Boston Adventure, which is the first novel by a writer named Jean Stafford, who um, was active in the mid-century. She is maybe most well-known, unfortunately, for her relationship with the poet Robert Cole. She was his wife. Um, But she was an extraordinary writer who was a horrifying alcoholic. She had like crippling alcoholism and that really um, inhibited her productivity, very sadly boston Adventure is her first novel it's a beautiful beautiful big fat book and so i am reading that book and, and trying to figure out what i'm going to say in this introduction so that's what i'm reading right now i'm also reading short stories because that's the class i'm teaching at at columbia university so this week we taught a book i taught a book called lot by the writer brian washington who's an incredible oh, yeah. writer incredible writer. i just read and memorial yes yes his, his first novel he's such a beautiful writer and um I was so thrilled that my undergraduates responded to this book with such passion, like we had such a great conversation about this book. Um, there's nothing quite like the feeling of taking a book that you love and forcing it on other readers. And that's like the particular joy of being a teacher. Um, so I just finished reading that and next week I'm teaching Carmen Maria Machado's um, Her Her Body and Other Parties. another. Extraordinary book, um, these are both queer books, which is like another part of the fun of being able to corrupt these young brilliant minds and forcing them to engage with what this queer black writer and this queer Latino writer are doing with the contemporary short story. Um, I know a lot of people have found this a difficult time for reading and I, that has not been my experience. I feel like I've been reading a ton and I feel like in, in my in, in a reality in which we can't go to the movies, And we can go to museums now, although I haven't done that. Uh, You can't go to the ballet. You can't go hear the New York Philharmonic. The book is still there. You can still get a book from your independent bookshop. You can still go pick up books from the library. And that's such a comfort to me. Like, everything else in our life seems to have slowed down a bit. But the book hasn't.
1: And so that always has something to offer me. Yeah. And yet, uh, the world is burning down on Twitter at the same time. Yeah. So how how do you... you...
2: Well... You got to force yourself to walk away, to step away. You, do. you I do. It's just healthy, you know. I mean, I know. I'm sure you felt this way in the run up to the election. I would get my screen time notifications right on Sunday or whenever, oh, yeah. whenever Apple sent them to you, and I would just feel so shamed. Like, absolutely. My, my iPhone was chiding me for how much attention uh-huh. I had given to social media. Yeah. But you do have to it's just healthy to maintain some distance and to say, okay, I'm going to retreat into a book.
1: Okay. So you, do you find that discipline on your own or do you use apps like freedom? Like I have to, yeah. so I'm so I just can't even look if I want to,
2: but don't you just fuck with freedom settings after a while? Like I don't no. trust my, oh see here. You're, you're a rule follower. See, I don't like I used to have used freedom and then I would just find I was disabling it. And then it's like, well, what is the point of doing this? Like, right. I, I'm not like, I have to just, find the discipline inside of myself to stop looking at my phone. I will say I started developing this is like such a sissy injury, but I started to feel like I was getting carpal tunnel from like playing with my phone too much in bed. Uh, and I was like, sure. well, clearly my body is saying, you got to chill with the phone. Yeah. You know? Did,
1: did you happen, we're speaking on the 11th of November. Did you happen to follow the, the Dean, whatever, <laughs> whatever it was story of yesterday?
2: So this is such a great example of like the truth being stranger than fiction, right? Absolutely. That you can't, we we live in such a moment for the imposter. Yeah. Like the imposter is a big part of the culture. I would argue that our national politics are guided by an imposter, uh, multiple imposters. Mm -hmm. And it's so, the reason a story like that feels rewarding to me is that it's the imposter getting caught and the truth being revealed. And this moment, this almost of collective mania and joy in saying, like, we have unmasked this performance. We, we have smelled a lie, and here is the proof. And that's so rewarding because the culture has given us lie after, lie after lie after lie after lie for so many years now that it's almost like you feel it in your body when a liar is called out. Yeah.
0: Are we talking about the, tw- I just skimmed past it, the guy who tweeted as a black gay yep. man. Yes. Exactly. Okay, got it. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yes, got it. And by the time did this you, comes out, everyone will have seen that, yeah.
1: E- but did you follow it to the next chapter where an avatar for this person comes forward and then what that person's background is? So he's Patty LaBelle's nephew? Is yes. Right
2: yeah. So- yeah. Again,
1: it's like the kind of thing
2: that, like, if you were writing that as a story, people would be like, right. sorry, this is unbelievable. It's just yeah. like, you've gone too far. Into you, the broad.
1: <laughs> you, you can't involve Patti
2: LaBelle. I, yeah. it, one of those things that, like, and that's actually what you're talking about is part of the particular nefarious addictiveness of spending a lot of time on Twitter. Or spending yeah. a lot of time on Instagram and being like, you know, I, I'm sure you follow, as I do, this, like, you'll follow these random people on Instagram, like when I go to like the discover page, it's all like shirtless men. Right. And it's like, you get like fooled into following these people and then like feeling some weird investment in the narrative of their life that they're propagating. And then like, when you're able to find like the, the holes in the story, you're like, Oh, this is so satisfying. Like I understand now that this person is like a charlatan or they're lying about something or this isn't really their house or whatever. But then you're like, what am I doing? I should just read a book. This is very unhealthy. It is. It
1: is. <laughs> My so, um my first followers are Instagram. Every chorus boy on Broadway is yeah. on, <laughs> oh. I got I got comments. really deep into ballet
2: Instagram because ballet dancers Ooh. have like mm. perfect bodies. And perfect. um the in the period right that we're in right now, all of these ballet dancers are not working.
0: Mm.
2: And so what they're doing is they're performing for the camera and Ballet is like an extraordinary thing to watch. And also, I I said this once before, and I really think it's true. Ballet is like the horniest of all art forms. Like every ballet is like about like doing it. And so that's all that they're doing. And it's these people with sort of perfect bodies constantly dancing in states of undress. And it's like a little, ballet Instagram, it's a little not safe for work, you know?
0: We need an app to, we need a a version of freedom just to like limit the number of thirst follows and number of (laughs) ballet dancers we can follow. So um, I want to talk about Leave the World Behind because it is kind of, um, I I, I think a lot of people have, have referred to it as like the perfect pandemic novel only because it is. Dealing with, you know, families in isolation who are you don't know what's happening in the outside world and they don't know how long they'll be in isolation. And I, I know you did not set out to write no. the perfect pandemic novel because you didn't predict the coronavirus. But what's what does it feel like? Uh, I, I don't know. I guess balancing the joy of, of releasing this book in the way it's being received with the obvious state of the planet
2: it feels like a weird, um, it's a weird coincidence, right? Like when you set out to write a book, there's no way that you can predict the cultural moment into which it will be published. So the example I've been using is that um, occasionally there will be an act of horrific gun violence in this country, right? Like they happen like clockwork. And then what will happen is some movie studio will say, oh, we're out of, out of sensitivity to what's just happened in the culture, we'll delay our movie about an act of horrific gun violence, right? Like, so what you have there is like the culture trying to respond to the cultural moment having shifted it under its feet, but not really interrogating the cultural products, deeper relationship to violence, right? Like maybe there are acts of horrific gun violence because we regularly have cinema that dramatizes and glorifies acts of gun violence. like. Maybe it's a chicken and egg problem. So yes, what I'm talking about is uncertainty and calamity and a sense of the uncanny in reality. When I decided on the metaphor of people trapped inside of a house, I didn't know that that was going to become literal. It seemed like a a fancy when I designed it. It was like, oh, this notion of people trapped inside of a house and unable to know what's happening in the world around them, to me reflected how I feel about the climate. We're all trapped on this planet and don't really know what we're doing to it so that's it just felt very tidy i didn't know that it would feel this literal Mm -hmm. i'm lucky though in that i think it deepens the reader's experience of the book and makes the book seem like it is talking about the climate but that maybe it's talking about a lot of other things as well and it gives the reader a different approach to what the book is grappling with Mm -hmm.
0: You know, I'm also I wanted to ask about your students, because I was just thinking about when I was in college, I was a theater major, which I never should have been. But any time, you know, we, we that like an acting teacher had a certain like cachet or we'd get like a visiting um, like we'd have like a master class with Philip Seymour Hoffman or something. The posturing that went on among all of us, trying to like show that we had a little something extra special, and like really wanting to ask the sort of showbiz questions, but knowing we shouldn't. But uh, it, you know, since you have this book at the moment, are you getting that energy from your students?
2: Uh, I don't think my students give a shit about what I do, to be honest, no. I'm not even I'm not even sure that they are aware that I have a book out. Um, I think that the relationship I have to them is a little like my relationship to my kids, which is not to infantilize them because they are adults, but like I'm there in service of them. And I think that their approach inside of that room is that they know it and that they're the ones sort of dictating like where the conversation goes and where the intellectual inquiry goes and that I'm there to help conduct it. And there doesn't seem to be an awareness among the students of who I am when I'm not participating in the classroom. I could be wrong. I mean, maybe they just feel shy or weird. I mean, I do think Zoom establishes a very strange power dynamic um, Mm -hmm. because I'm just a head on a screen to them. I've never had the opportunity to meet any of these kids in person, which is disappointing. Um, But my role as teacher, especially when they are making themselves vulnerable to me by showing me their work and progress is to care about their work and not vice versa. Like they're not looking at my work. I'm not like, that's not the interest. And so if they have any sense of me publishing a novel or existing in a context outside of the classroom, they've kept that for me. They haven't said anything to me about it. Um, they're just
0: better at covering their thirst. Maybe. I don't was, know. Maybe. maybe. <laughs> Um, and w- we should mention that there's also this Netflix adaptation in the works with Julia Roberts and Denzel Washington. Sam Esmail. and it's such a dream team. Yeah. And um, of course, the, in the in the book, the character Gh is described as looking like Denzel Washington. Yeah. So how did that happen?
2: Yeah. Um, okay. So in June of this year, I got the first communique from Michelle Weiner, who's my agent at CAA, um, saying, oh, this, someone is interested in adapting this book, or I've heard some interest about this book. And um, I was like, oh, great, like, great. I'm sure nothing will ever come of this. And then we had this sort of like, escalating series of conference calls where, um, the kind of call where the powerful person in Los Angeles is having their assistant call you and say, please hold for Michelle. Like I love that kind of dynamic. And I I thought the whole, the whole time I was getting these calls, I was really tickled by them because they felt like an exercise in something that was never going to come to fruition. That it was like a brush with glamour. That would be a great anecdote. that I could tell someday, like, Oh, remember that time that this agent at CAA called me and said like, Oh, I heard this thing about this. So all of these conversations were like that. And so at, at some point, Michelle said, oh, this guy, Sam Esmail, wants to talk to you. Here's who he is. And I was like, well, I know who he is. Um, and then I had this conversation with Sam and his producing partner, Chad, who are like lovely people. And this was before the book had even been published. And the conversation was so meaningful to me because it was not a conversation about let's make a movie of your book. It was more a conversation about, like, I'm an artist and I'm excited about your book and I want to talk to you about what it reminds me of. I want to tell you what I liked about it. I want to tell you what I saw in it. And until that moment, the only people I had ever talked to my book about were my publishing team. And this is, you know, if you're lucky, your editor and your agent are going to tell you that you're great. But this is like your parents telling you that you're handsome. Mm. Right. So it's like, who gives a shit? Like, it's your job to tell me that I'm great. It was really different to hear this from somebody who had no particular investment in this book, who was just saying to me, I am an artist and I really liked this thing that you did. That said, I assumed that nothing would ever come of it because you're crazy to think that anything is going to come of this. I have a lot of friends who are writers who have had a lot of phone calls like this with powerful people that have come to nothing because why, why would they? Why would they come to anything? Especially in a moment where we were already in lockdown at that point. So like, why would business as usual get done? Um, my family went to Fire Island for three weeks this summer, six weeks altogether. Anyway, this happened in the first part of our trip to Fire Island. And I was getting this, like, increasing phone calls from Michelle's wonderful assistant, this guy named Zach, so sweet, saying, we need to have a conference call with all these people. We need to conference call with these, all these people. And I was like, God, I'm really doing a lot of conference calls. Like, this is a lot of effort to be putting into something that is just going to be fundamentally an anecdote someday but you know i was on a holiday it was no big deal it's like you know you're going to these conference calls and basically the only thing is that the only responsibility is to listen to people talk about you and say nice things about you what kind of writer is going to turn that down like it's fucking amazing for the ego to have all these people say oh we really liked your book i never ever ever thought that it was going to lead anywhere and at some point they started talking about julia roberts and they would always talk about her as julia oh, well, Julia said that, oh, Julia, you know. Both. And it was like they were talking about, like, Julia from accounting. And I was like, What's <laughs> the, I was like are you guys talking about Julia Roberts? Because that's really, I was like, I know she's a human being, but, like, it's really, let's just acknowledge how weird it is that we're talking about Julia yeah. Julia Roberts, not Julia from accounting. Um, but I still never actually thought that anything would come of this. I really didn't. Um, at some point, they called me and said Denzel Washington has agreed to be attached to this production because Julia because Julia liked the book and sent it to him personally. Again, it's like what are you talking? About? Like, in what universe does anything that I'm describing sound real? It all sounds like something I made up. You know, it's like oh, I have a girlfriend in Canada. You know what I mean? It's like what are yeah. you talking? About? <laughs> um, and so the day that they actually closed the deal, I I could not believe it. I really could not believe it. In some ways, I still can't believe it. Um, and it's not, it's not about my awe at star power, right? Like you can't help but be awed about Julie Robertson as a Washington. They're not just stars. They're like some of the most famous people in the world. It's the notion that like this thing that I wrote during a really shitty year alone that I like slogged through meant something to people who are artists working at the top of their field. And that they said, okay, this thing is so meaningful to us, we will do something with it. It's extraordinary. It's an extraordinary feeling.
0: Yeah.
1: And I can't wait to see it. Yeah, same. Anything to look forward to. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you get to hang out on the set. Well, I mean,
2: everything is so mitigated by coronavirus, right? Right. Like, it's very complicated. I do think part of the particular appeal of this work for studios is that you could actually make this film under the very strict protocols that affect production right now because there are only like eight people who will appear there are only eight people who appear in the book right like it's the everything takes place in one place like there's a way in which you could imagine the thing actually going into production um so i truly do hope that it goes into production i truly hope that it's Filming on Long Island and that I can, that Netflix will send a town car for me and let me go out there and like gawk at all of these famous people pretending to be people who I made up, you know, because what could be more fun? Like it would be a dream come true for sure.
0: Yeah, and it's true. You you didn't only write the perfect pandemic novel, you wrote the perfect pandemic movie, the yeah. most sort of <laughs> production friendly thing given the circumstances. So would love to hear a little more about your personal life and your family. Um, Can you tell us how you and your husband met?
2: Yes, we are a product of the world's most successful blind date. Um, I used to work at a fashion magazine. um, And one day the woman who sat in front of me was like, Hey, I met this guy at a party last night. And I was like, yeah, is he gay? Like, are you just saying, like, oh, I met a gay person? So you must know him or you should date him? Because that's usually how these things go. And um, she was like, no, I really he's, I really liked him. I really think you should meet him. And I was like, okay. Because I was so deeply single, like so cripplingly single. And so they devised some kind of group activity and I met him. And, um, yeah, that was 17... 17- years ago like it just like we have been together since then um and my husband david he is a photographer and he's great and i think that like if there's any lesson there it's in like actually you should probably go on the blind date you're right to be skeptical and be like oh you can't just set me up with any gay person you happen to meet because that's dumb and that is how a lot of dumb setups happen but you really don't ever know you really don't ever know and david um you know, we're 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 very different in all the ways that I think really enrich a relationship. He's a photographer, and I'm a writer, so um, our approach to the world is very different. His is visual, and mine is sort of linguistic, let's say, or interior. Um, but that's I don't know. There's some kind of we're I don't know. There's some kind of great compatibility there, and we've had um, yeah, I don't know. We have a great marriage, knock on wood. Um, and so we got married. When we we met in 2003, we got married in 2008, and then a year later, we had a baby, just like a post-war couple in like 1950s America. We had this very conventional experience of, um, I, I knew I wanted to be a dad, um, something I always wanted. And I can't speak to whether David always wanted that or whether that was something he came to, but it just seemed to happen very organically for us. We... Um, Both of our sons are adopted. We adopted through an agency in New York City called Spence Chapin and um, had such a like charmed, beautiful experience of that. Um, We, gay couples come to adoption from a different perspective, I think, than a lot of straight couples or single parents, right? A lot of people in that room were coming to adoption from um, grappling with infertility or grappling with um, being single and wanting to be a parent and finding that that was the most obvious avenue for them for us as a gay couple. I mean, we weren't interested in surrogacy. So this was really our option. This is really our way into it. And it felt like very natural. And it happened very, very quickly. We went to that first meeting at Spence Chapin in January, and we had a baby by October. So it's almost the length of a conventional pregnancy actually. Um, and then we had another baby three years later and now we are that couple with a minivan and two kids. You know, I don't really, I don't really know how it happened. I don't really know how it happened that we have that kind of life, but um, it's a good one. Yeah.
0: And, and in between, oh, I, well, I was just going to ask what in between um, the sort of the first meeting and then uh, the, you know, meeting your son in October, how, or how soon did you know, oh, this is really happening?
2: Um, I'm trying to remember now. So we, I think it became clear in September of that year. Um, and it's not unlike how I described thinking about the movie adaptation of my book right like you get a phone call that implies that something might be happening but it, as a self-protective measure you hold it away and you think well this isn't really I have to prepare for disappointment because that's how life works right like it's more disappointing it's more often disappointing than not um and then in this particular instance it just it happened it happened and um What I say, I talk to a lot of friends who are considering adoption, and I talked to them about this process. And what I said to all of them is, like, no matter how long it takes, or no matter how many disappointments happen along that road, because those are inevitable, I think you forget those because the story ends happily. Right? So, like, I only know how the story ended and I forgotten sort of the emotional territory of that period of waiting or that period of uncertainty or that period of feeling like, what exactly are we doing? This is such a huge leap, you know, and it was such a huge leap. Um, and it continues to be, I think we're still kind of in freefall, free fall, actually. Um, it, it's one that goes on for a long time. Um, it's also how we think about marriage in this culture, right? Like you think about marriage as like the finish line, but it's, actually the starting line. Right. So like that moment of being told, actually, this person has chosen you to be parent to this child is not the finish line. It's the beginning.
1: And then you've got to get very ready, very quickly.
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. But you know what? It's very easy to do that stuff because what you're talking about is, um, material, right? Like, and we're like, we had enough that we could like buy the things that we needed and actually, um, what I saw in that moment was this look like, extraordinary responsive generosity from everyone in our lives. A woman who I worked with, who I worked for sent a man who worked for her to our house with a crib, a mattress, a bassinet and boxes and boxes of hand-me-downs from her own children. Wow. And this man, like, came in and built the crib in our apartment. Like, just, like, you know, that this particular gesture of generosity, and that's material generosity, but that's not necessarily what I'm talking about. In the same way that, like, when my neighbors had a baby, I made them a lasagna. I think that there's, like, a natural instinct toward, like, community among people, and that when these things happen, people get excited. And I love telling my older son this story, that, like, he was so wanted, not just by me and my husband, but by, like, everyone in our lives, that there was a period, like, right after he came home that we had so many presents arrive from Amazon that I had stacked them up in the living room and the stack actually touched the ceiling. It's just, a, it's like a very, it's, it's dumb to measure anything in material good, right? But that is a measure of something. The measure of, like, every person in our lives, my husband's agent, his cousin's, People I had once worked with were so excited about this moment that, like, their only way they could respond to it was by saying, "Here's a stuffed tiger. Like, I'm sending it to you on Amazon." And like, piling these things up in the in the living room. It just it it showed me that, like, you weirdly all that stuff showed me that you don't need any of this stuff. What you need is like the emotion that underlies that stuff. That feeling of like excitement and that feeling of like we're all sort of part of something and we're all thrilled about it and my kid, I mean, that's, like, my kids to this day are, like, the most spoiled kids in the world, and also, like, they have this very big circle of people around them who adore them, you know, and this isn't, like, a gay thing or a straight thing, but, like, in our, in our particular circumstances, it is kind of a gay thing, right? Like, there was an excitement on the part of the queer couples and friends in our lives who haven't chosen to become parents, but who are so thrilled about the expansion of the family that we've all assembled together, and um, that's really important to us. That's really like a magical thing about for us about raising
0: kids. What is your current uh, uh, state of mind, uh, emotional state around um, the 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 world? I mean, obviously, we we just had great news, uh, after the election, but we're also, uh, there's also a lot of sort of bullshit happening between now and inauguration day. Um, and there is some potential light at the end of the tunnel in terms of a vaccine. How are you processing all of that? And what is the sort of general mood in your household?
2: It's very challenging for me to, like, maintain a sense of, like, comfort and normal for the kids, but also be, like, the adult who's responding to these, like, emotional highs and lows that happen every time you get a news alert on your phone. I just got a news alert, like, during this conversation. Oh, and you can feel Anything your, <clears throat> no, it's, like, one of those, like, you know, here's, like, our summary of whatever, but, like, you know, yeah, it's,
1: Breaking news, yeah, nothing's changed. Breaking news,
2: nothing happened. <laughs> you feel that response in your own body, you feel your adrenaline go up and down. And I don't know if optimism is what I feel generally. I do, I mean, I'm obviously thrilled that, well, I shouldn't say obviously, but I am thrilled that Biden and Harris won. I'm mindful of the very powerful symbol of a black woman, assuming the second highest office in our politics. You know Joe Biden is a a decent person but I don't think he is a progressive politician and he's an old man and what this culture really demands at this moment I think is progressive politics and as practiced by a politician who is probably younger I'm not sure Kamala Harris is that person either But again like it's reductive to think about binaries right it's reductive to think that like oh well you know what's like what are the choices here like Donald Trump it's a fallacy all of that stuff all of that trumpist stuff is ridiculous and to see that rejected by the electorate is really satisfying and really rewarding and it makes it much easier to look at kids in the eye and say the generation in power has actually done something for the generation who doesn't have a voice electorally and politically um but you know coronavirus is still here and the economy I'm we still i mean how much money did this government send to working people in this country? Twelve hundred dollars in
0: since March. I mean, it's it's a joke. It's a joke. How how much of I mean, we're all in a, in progressive bubbles to a certain degree. I'm assuming, and I know I am. Uh, but I also am from Ohio, and I have family in in Pennsylvania and Florida, and so I, and I have been somewhat psychotically just slicing people out of my life Mm -hmm. left Mm -hmm. and right have you had to grapple with that or are you sort of um, protected
2: I am certainly comfortably ensconced in my progressive bubble at the same time I would argue that like this election was a referendum on truth itself and that truth won out and that we have We have suffered under a system that has pretended that like a lot of the conservative or Republican thinking about complicated things is valid or even worth entertaining. And I think that we've seen that a lot of it is plainly ridiculous. And I feel happy about being able to say, Yeah, this is ridiculous, and I'm tired of a culture of both sidesism, or, you know, maintaining this fiction that republican nihilism is even worth entertaining as like a political perspective because it's not it's not the truth is that i feel sorry for people who are true believers because I feel that they have been played by political power i think there's a lot of like disingenuous political effort with respect to pro-life politics for example or with respect to gun rights I, don't, I think it's all lip service. I think it's all like a cudgel that's being used to enact um, policy of enrichment for a certain class of person. And it's increasingly hard to accept and pretend that that's real, right? That it's increasingly hard to pretend that conservatives in this country are a party that is committed, for example, to a pro-life movement when clearly they don't care about 200,000 Americans dropping dead of what in the end is a really preventable virus, right? Like the right rigorous enforcement of mask wearing would have been enough to save a lot of people's lives. You can't hold those contradictions in your head. You can't. And I'm glad that I don't feel like I have to pretend to.
1: Um, I, I should tell you. Um... As you were saying that, I myself received a, a news notification. Um, and it's from the Los Angeles Times. Go ahead, call her a spoiled celeb kid. No one shades Larry David's daughter better than herself. <laughs> news that was a push notification. News that was a push notification. Yeah. This is not the moment for that LA Times. <laughs> um, can can we go back to two thousand three, I guess it was, and and go through that blind date? Yeah, sure. With you and David? Where'd you sure. go? What'd you do? Oh my God.
2: It's so embarrassing when I tell you what we did. So, um, the okay. So I was at a fashion magazine. My colleague was the accessories editor. She had met David via a friend who was a publicist. And so this publicist, his name is Patrick, and her, his colleague um, invited us both to go out for a drink. And I think at the last minute we were like, well, let's go have dinner. And so do you know where we went? We went to Benny's Burritos in the West Village. Oh, was like wow. the most busted place to go, but it was kind of great. Um, and, you know, we had this like weird dinner where we knew we were having dinner so that I could meet David and vice versa, but also we were like pretending that we were all just having dinner as colleagues or pals or whatever. Um, and then after dinner, David was like, oh, we should have a drink sometime. And I was like, okay, yeah, let's do that. And, um, and we did. And, um, so I guess like technically our first date happened a couple of weeks after that we went to dinner at a French restaurant. Um, the name of it flew out of my head just now, but what's funny is that it's on the corner, it's around the corner from where our children go to school now, which is like a particularly fitting turn of events. Um, and it was the night that, <clears throat> the Americans started bombing Baghdad. It was March 18th of 2003. And so I remember there was a television set um, playing and we were having that kind of dinner that you have when you are first, like, you know, you know what you're there to do, right? You're there to like explain yourselves to one another and see if there's some connection or some relationship. And we were talking about the politics of the moment. David's like a very, he's somebody who's very engaged by politics. He's somebody who's very thoughtful about the world. And... Seeing that, I think, was really useful. Like having having a shared experience of responding to what was happening in the world at that moment was very useful as a way of getting to know one another. Um, at the time, David, so David at the time was an assistant. He was an assistant to a photographer, and so he was traveling all the time. And when I say traveling, like it was like this very glamorous traveler, he'd be like, Oh gosh, next week I have to go to India, next week I have to go to Russia. And for a while I was like, well, are you a spy? Like, I don't, it's not really normal to be like, oh shit, I have to go to India in two days. Um, But he, he's kind of like an adventurer. He loves to be out in the world and I'm sort of a homebody. And it was really nice to just, I don't know, to be challenged by a different kind of personality to be with somebody who had a really different experience of life. Um, he went to art school and I went to a liberal arts college. Like we just have very different perspectives on the world. And there was a nice harmony in that. There was a nice like synchronicity in that. And um, we dated for a while. There was a period in which I thought he was too old for me. He loves he loves it when I talk about this, but he's... Uh, He's, depending on when it falls in the year, he's either four years or three years older than me. He always gets mad when I say this. He's <laughs> four years older than me. But um, at the time, he was turning 30. He turned 30 that fall. And um, I was 26, which is so very young. Like I'm, That was so young. And I think I was really cautious or really like, you're too old for me. You're too grown up for me. And then at some point... Thank God. I was like, what the fuck are you doing to yourself? Why are you, what are you saying to yourself? Like, what do you think is going to be better than this? Why are you getting in the way, why are you getting in your own way? And I just got out of my own way and I'm so glad that I did. I'm so glad that I did. Um, The difference,
1: the difference seems so vast at that age.
2: I think it does. I think it does. And I also think I was um I was sort of like an immature gay person. And maybe maybe that's common for my generation, right? Like that I was sort of like enacting like a late gay adolescence because I had never really had that. Right. And I thought that maybe I had to be dating widely, although I can assure you that I was not. Um and like having this experience of like freewheeling youth. And it's like, why why am I clinging to this perception that that's the kind of life I need to have when I have this incredible thing right here in front of me? Like, why would I do that to myself? And so I wisely shut up and we had like a really nice couple of years together and then we moved in together and then um, we were flying back from a friend's wedding. And David said to me, like, we should get married. We should, it's important. Like, this is, like, it's, it's, there's a power in seeing these people who you've known for a long time and you care about, like, stand up in front of everyone who knows and cares about them and make it real. And this is when Gavin Newsom was first marrying people in San Francisco. And so David is from California. We flew to Santa Cruz which is where he's from, in 2008, when this was all happening, and were married legally um, as part of that first cohort of same-sex couples to marry in the state of California. Um, and that was amazing. It was amazing um, to be a part of that particular shift in the culture that now, in a weird way, like 12 years on, seems like settled. Right? Cultural change happens that way. It happens like really slow and then all at once. And now it's just the reality and I'm, I'm glad that it is. And, uh, I, I'm very proud of our particular relationship to that one brief blip in history when everything seemed to shift, you know? Um, and then we got, we had like a wedding in September. So we were married in August and we had like a wedding here in New York in September. Um, and a, a friend lent us their beautiful house in Brooklyn and all of our friends came and we had Mexican food and it was, uh, amazing. And, um, my kids get so mad when we talk about it. Cause they're like, well, why weren't we there? Like, why, why weren't we invited? Like, well, that's not exactly how it works, but, um, all that stuff is really meaningful. All that stuff is, it's like, it can be meaningless. All of the trappings of, um, marriage, especially a way in which it's like a queer conformity to like heterosexual ideals of marriage can feel very hollow. But for me, it felt very meaningful, not the stuff, not the celebration of like the putting on fancy clothes, but like what it all meant in that moment in the culture felt like something, you know, and prepared us for the kind of life that we have now, and a couple of so a couple of years ago, we had um, a friend from David's childhood over for Thanksgiving, um, who is like he's a queer artist, and actor who has lived in the East Village for like two decades in like a tiny rent-controlled apartment. He's like a very hardcore political activist and performance artist, and he came over for Thanksgiving, and he really saw. The texture of our everyday life. Like our kids were smaller then, and it's just about like a napping baby and a bottle and like a dinner at four o'clock and like a walk around the block. And he said to me, he was like, You know, it's kind of punk rock what you've got going on here. He's like, It's kind of crazy, but like there's something happening here. And I, I love that perspective. I love that perspective because it, it, as conventional as our lives sometimes feel to me, I'm also mindful of the ways in which they are a rebellion.
1: What kind of gay adolescence did you have?
2: A pretty shitty one. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, it is very difficult, I think, to describe to straight people, right, the psychic break that attends an existence in the closet, right? Like an awareness of the self that you hold at some distance. It's sort of amazing that the brain can even do that, and it's, uh, it's such a relief to leave it, to, to look, even to look at it from the distance of now at 43 still makes me feel tense or sad about the kid who I was. I remember very clearly feeling like an emotional attachment to like boys on sitcoms, not a sexual attachment, an emotional attachment. Did you... I I don't know, I think, I don't know if I'm older than you guys, but um, Leonardo DiCaprio was on Growing Pains, like, in the final seasons, right? Like, there was this, like, insane subplot where Mike was, like, working as a teacher. Is his name Mike? I don't even know. Kirk Cameron. And he, like, was, in Leonardo DiCaprio was homeless or something. And to me, I I don't know how old I was then, probably 14. I was like, oh, this is like a romance. I recognized it as a romance and I felt like a particular way about Leonardo DiCaprio that was really powerful that had probably to do with like his physical beauty because he was like such a weirdly beautiful adolescent, like sort of disturbingly so, especially right after that. But it wasn't about sex or I couldn't, I didn't have the language to apply sex to it. It was this feeling of like, oh, that's, I want this kind of relationship. It's an amazing thing to inhabit queerness and be able to read it into text where it doesn't exist yeah right it's such a weird thing and it's like i remember feeling a particular way about ricky schroeder of silver spoons i would have been so very young then i would have been like nine and that is not a sexual feeling and it's so discomforting to talk to to straight people because there's an assumption of um sex in that but i don't think that's what it is i don't think that's what it is I think it's just a recognition of like the self that is brewing and it's remarkable to me that you learn or that you know as a gay kid or a trans kid probably how to keep that quiet. You understand the world teaches you like, oh, I better never actually say this aloud. Yeah.
0: And you learn what are the safe places to sort of project that and to, you know, experience it in a way that is still acceptable.
2: Yeah, to write fiction, which is what I've done since I was a child, right? To inhabit a space in which the self is kind of hidden feels very safe. Um, And it's very sad. And I wonder what will happen to the culture As we move toward, there's probably, this generation probably exists, a generation that has not ever known the closet. There are probably kids out there who meet that definition now. What that will be like in their adulthood, kind of remarkable to think about, you know?
1: Yeah, there's a a tremendous amount of pain and isolation, but it it makes you a certain kind of person, or it can. And yeah, that that is being lifted, and I... Yeah, I wonder about that myself. Yeah. The the yeah. the the absolute luxury of growing up boring as hell. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Of not um, having a coming out story.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, Ruman uh this was so, so great. And it's an honor to meet you. I love the book so much. Well, thank and you. thank you. I can't wait to see uh Pictures on Instagram of you and Julia palling yeah. <laughs> around in
1: Long Island, when
0: in I,
2: the same yeah, I, pod. I, I've, I've one of my favorite things about this was trying to explain to my kids <clears throat> who Julie Roberts is and mm-hmm. like who Denzel Washington are, and like why it matters that they. Yeah, are, do you show
0: like, them the formative works, or how? What do you? I, I,
2: it's like incomprehensible to them. In a weird way, fame is incomprehensible to them because they actually exist in a totally different media ecosystem. Like to them, YouTubers are famous. Right. Right? So they don't like, and they also, they're mostly drawn to animated entertainment. And even the non-animated stuff that they watch, I'm not sure they understand that it's pretend. So um, Michael B. Jordan was in a film, Creed. He was in Creed. Right. And they saw the posters of Creed on the side of a bus and they were like, hmm, that's Killmonger. Hmm. And I was like, yeah, he's an actor like Black Panther's pretend. And they were like, hmm, are you sure? Like, what are you talking about? And I was like, "He's he's a really famous actor who has been in all of these things, and they were like, hmm, okay, whatever you say. Like, I just right. don't think they can comprehend that, which is so funny. And so explaining celebrity to them is, like, so meaningless. So actually, this is, like, all celebrity journalism should be done by, like, 11-year-olds because <laughs> they would just go into it and be like, so, who are you? What do you... Tell me about Julia Roberts. Like, it would be so funny and so different, yes. such a yeah. different power dynamic, you know? Um, <laughs> and they, yeah, they just, they, they have no understanding of who Julie Roberts is. The and, flip
0: side of that is when Dave and I have to interview a YouTube celebrity and we're like, what um, are yeah. you? I mean,
2: yeah. they, my, kid, my kids, there's also like, I, I actually was thinking about this today that like someday there's a great horror story to be written in the way in which like the language of the YouTube performer will affect the spoken language of this whole generation of kids mm-hmm. who they play, they play, by saying like what's up guys it's me blah blah blah. they're like they're performing for an imagined camera they're like enacting being youtube celebrities they do this like by themselves i can hear i'll hear them from the next room and i'll be like who are you talking to like what are you what are you doing um that's how kids relate to the world now and so in that construct of the world talking about denzel washington is like talking about cave painting
0: like they don't give a shit
2: you know they don't give a shit it's kind of, it's kind of amazing
0: Someday they'll understand. Someday Someday, they'll see the world behind. Someday someday they'll get it. Yeah, they'll get the gravity of it. (laughs) They'll get it. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. This This was really great. Thank you. Great to meet you guys. It was great 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 to meet meet you. you.
1: Well, Matt, we've come to the end of another episode. Dave, 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 thank you
0: for being here with me, giving me a reason to live. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you for reviewing us on Apple Podcasts with five stars only, of course. Thank you to Renee Colvert with a T, Mm -hmm. our our producer. Thank you to Ryan Connor, our engineer. Thank you to everybody at
1: Earwolf. Uh Thank Um, you, Ben Wise, for the music. Yes. And thank you, listener, for listening. Uh, Tell a friend, leave a review. We love you.